You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Mabel Chu finds out about spirometry in primary care. Often demonstrating it yourself and then giving the patient their mouthpiece and getting them to show you how they do it is really the best way to be sure. But before that... For a range of reasons, many young people with depression are unable to access therapy to help them cope. A new programme from a group of researchers in New Zealand hopes to tackle that, and their study evaluating its efficacy is now available on bmj.com. To talk about Sparks, I'm joined by Sally Merry, who's an Associate Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Auckland. So Sally, what is Sparks? Sparks is a um, computerized intervention. It's, it's on a CD-ROM, and it's basically a fantasy-based uh, 3D animated game which delivers cognitive behavioral therapy by interacting with uh, the young person. Having had a look at the trailer online, uh, which people can see in your paper as well, it's quite a rich experience, a bit like um, World of Warcraft or one of those big multiplayer games that uh, loads of kids play. Why did you decide to go and try and do something that that looked like that? This has been the sort of culmination of quite a lot of work and then uh, getting feedback from young people. So the idea started probably about a decade ago when a GP friend of mine said that she thought I should try and put cognitive behavioural therapy onto a CD-ROM so that she could run it in the corner of her practice because she couldn't get young people that she was seeing in to see therapists. And um, I had Carolina Stasiak, uh, who is a postdoc research fellow with working with me now, and she did an earlier iteration which was called The Journey, which was a flash-based and interactive program. And one of the things when we had a look at what was actually available was a lot of it was, we thought, reasonably boring, actually. Mm. Uh, quite a lot of writing online, and it wasn't actually taking advantage of all the things that young people do. So when we set out to develop Sparks, that was absolutely our aim, was to get it to try and look like World of Warcraft. I would just like to say it's it's not as jazzy as that. We haven't got the sophisticated gameplay that you might get in, in you know some of the commercial games. But we've certainly been able to, I think, recreate some of that fantasy-based environment. Mm, absolutely. Now, that must have been quite a daunting task. A department of psychiatry probably doesn't have uh, uh, someone in-house who will be able to do that kind of thing. So how did you go about actually developing this software? We sort of made it up as we've gone along, really. And we actually heard Maru Niho Niho, who is the director of a uh, computer games company called Metia Interactive. She was on the radio having developed a, a computer game which she had actually sold to PlayStation. So we phoned her up and offered her uh, the amazing opportunity of working (laughs) for us for very little money uh, to develop the resource for young people. And I think one of the things that's really marked this project is the huge generosity that we've actually had from people like Maru and others, actors and composers and musicians and so on, who've really had, I think, the interests of young people who are depressed at heart and have been very generous with their time and resources. But the other part that we've actually used is uh, we have had the director of the Learning Technology Unit at the Faculty of Medical and Health Sciences, Ian Doherty, involved in the design. So we landed up with a team of cognitive behavioural therapists and 
computer games developer, learning technologist, and then we had a group, uh, well, a number of groups of young people, but one quite big group of young young people who worked with us and uh, I think kept it all very realistic and uh, gave us very frank feedback when they thought we were getting it wrong. <laughs> well, that, that's the best way to, uh, to, to develop these kind of things. How did you actually go about turning... CBT, which is very obviously a, a t- talking therapy, um, into something that was a bit more role-play, action-based. We did a lot of brainstorming. One of the things that we wanted to address was the fact that depression is common and between three-quarters and four-fifths of young people with depression never, ever get any help. And so we wanted to make it appealing and something easily accessible. So we fairly quickly decided on, I think with a bit of nudging from our computer games developers, decided on a fantasy-based format. And part of that was it was sort of Lord of the Rings era. So there was a lot of uh, films being made in New Zealand. Mm. and So we thought we could actually capitalize on that sort of idea. And we decided that the one of the things that you can do is learn by doing. And one of the things that we could probably create in the game was for young people to learn by doing by getting an avatar to do some of the stuff that we would normally get people to do in real life mm-hmm. in cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. And uh, how long did this whole process take? That took a year. Um, and I, a low moment came about five months into the year when we'd actually done quite a lot of development. And we, the young people came in and we very proudly showed them what um, we'd done and they hated it. <laughs> <laughs> we would then worked very hard with them over the course of a week, actually. And, and um, they came up with storylines and had ideas. And then we did, we did a, a lot of thinking about how we would do it. And it seems to have worked as the results of your study, which is in the BMJ, has shown. So could you just take us quickly through that study? The thing that we wanted to look at most, the, our study was funded by the Ministry of Health and one of the problems that we were wanting to address was how to increase access to treatment for young people with depression. We wanted to check that this was something that would work if young people accessed it uh, without actually ever going to a therapist mm-hmm. and that um, they wouldn't be put at any risk. So we have compared Sparks with what young people would get if they were to go and ask somebody for help. So we had uh, general practices. In New Zealand, a lot of young people can actually go to the uh, what we call school guidance counsellors, who, mm-hmm. who are trained counsellors and deal a lot with mental health problems. And then we also have um, what we call youth one-stop shops, which are basically youth clinics where young people can go and get all their medical needs dealt with so they can go and get their asthma medication and get their diabetes seen to and pick up the pill and also get their depression dealt with. And so we we tested it in those sites. So young people coming into the study were randomised to either get the care that they would normally get in that setting or they would do SPARKS. And what we showed was that Sparks was at least as good as um, what they were getting. It was slightly better on a lot of measures, but um, that wasn't statistically significant except on, on, one, on one measure. But I think what we felt, and, and, the, and there was no increase in harm, so one of the biggest things we were worrying about was self-harm. And so we finished the study thinking that actually it would be fine to, uh, if, if young people were feeling 
miserable and wanted to access it, that it would be fine to put it on the web and let them download it or send it out on CD and say, give this a go. You can you can probably um, get on top of the depression yourself. And if you can't, there's actually flags actually in the game that so young people monitor their mood. So And we have very explicit things saying, looks like your mood isn't improving. What about going to see a counsellor? Mm-hmm. So I think we feel now very confident that we should be able to uh, release it and yet let young people use it as uh, independently without having to go and, and see anybody or ask anybody about it. Great. So um, have you actually released it yet? What are your plans you know, for, for Sparks um, in the future? <laughs> we had money to do the study, but we didn't have money to distribute it. So I'm, we, we're all trying now to find money so that we can actually get it dis- distributed in a way that we can keep that going in an ongoing way. So we've got a couple of things that we need to do. There's a, there's a few bugs that we need to iron out, um, and, uh, and then we need to find a way of distributing it. And then I think the next thing we want to do is, is, is work out at the moment, it's on a CD-ROM. We'd like to be able to put it online. We'd like to put it onto iPad and iPhone and mm-hmm. Android apps and so on. And then we'd like to to, to um, broaden it so that we could add modules. So it, it works for um, anxiety as well as depression, but I think we could improve that. And then there are other other um, things that we could develop modules to address. Great. Well, Sally, thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to us about your study. Not at all. Thank you very much, Duncan. And that study is now available open access on bmj.com. Before our next segment, I just wanted to tell you about the BMJ's new Olympics portal. There we'll be bringing together all the sports medicine content from across the group and we'll have a whole range of articles and blogs, podcasts and videos. So go to bmj.com forward slash Olympics to check it out. Now, Mabel Chu gets a masterclass on spirometry in primary care. I have with me in the studio Professor Christine Jenkins, who's a respiratory physician from the Department of Thoracic Medicine at Concord Hospital in Sydney, Australia. Christine, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you very much, Mabel. Christine, you're here to talk to us about investigating asthma symptoms in primary care and in particular the role of spirometry. I think the best thing to do is to start with a case and you give a very useful example in your article which is being published in the BMJ this week. The case is that of a 36-year-old man with several months' history of exercise-related dyspnea and chest tightness. He's an ex-smoker. Um, these symptoms bother him particularly during football training though it doesn't really restrict him, doesn't occur every time he exercises and usually resolves after a few minutes of rest. He's been offered Ventolin or Salbutamol for relief of his symptoms, my friend, and it's definitely helped him to feel better. So tell me what the likely diagnoses are that might be going through your head at this point. In my mind, the relief with salbutamol is important, but it's not a diagnostic test when it's given in the real world like this. It may well have an effect because people expect it to. And I think it's most important that we think about how to demonstrate that there is definitely an abnormality consistent with airways obstruction, which is improved significantly by a bronchodilator. But before that, I start to think about the clinical characteristics and the history. 
And in this case, it's likely if there is wheezing that it's more likely to be asthma. If there's a history in the past of asthma, if there's a childhood history of wheezing or persistent respiratory symptoms after viral infections, if there's a family history, or if there is an allergic history. Other sorts of diagnoses, though, are important in a young person, particularly anxiety, can sometimes present like this. Lack of fitness, of course, can. Cardiac causes, uncommon, but most important to exclude because many of them are treatable. Other important causes that can mimic asthma are vocal cord dysfunction, which is a syndrome where there is paradoxical movement of the vocal cords. So they cause dried or on inspiration, a little different to the wheeze on expiration of airways obstruction uh, within the thorax, but a very important syndrome because sometimes it is misdiagnosed as asthma and then treated as asthma. It doesn't get better with asthma treatments, but people often get given much too much medication in that an attempt to get them better. Okay, well, let's say that you've excluded cardiac causes. You're pretty sure from his past history that it's pointing towards a diagnosis of asthma, although the possibility of COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease can't be excluded because he was a smoker until two years ago. Now, the temptation at this point, of course, is just a trial of treatment with salbutamol. Um, He has in the past had some degree of relief from it. Would that be the right way to go, do you think? The reasons I think it's not in the patient's interests are that patients can improve with short-term treatments simply because of the natural history of the symptoms that they are short-term in their own right. For instance, asthma symptoms are often self-limited, perhaps sometimes only seasonal or occurring after a viral respiratory infection for a few weeks. On the other hand, um, if a diagnosis of asthma is assumed and he doesn't have it, he may well be advised to stay on treatment long-term, which he doesn't need. Or alternatively, he'll continue to experience these symptoms, for instance, if he has vocal cord dysfunction, and not receive good advice about how to reduce or minimise those symptoms. And, of course, you might fail to diagnose a very important disease, such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which, as you've suggested, Um, actually has long-term consequences and most importantly stopping smoking is is crucial to preventing further uh, evolution of lung function abnormality. And then finally if the problem is anxiety or hyperventilation that too is a manageable and treatable problem. So all in all I think it's crucial since there are simple tests that can clarify if it's asthma or not that they're used in the first instance to try to work out what the diagnosis is. Okay. Well, what would you recommend as the next step then? Now, in some people with asthma, particularly young people with relatively mild disease, they may in fact have normal spirometry, but they will often still, particularly if they have not received any preventative treatments for asthma, have a degree of bronchodilator reversibility that is supportive of reversible airways obstruction consistent with asthma. So I think the first step is to measure airway function with spirometry. Now the thing about spirometry is that it has to be properly done in order to have uh, results that can be usefully interpreted. Would you like to take us through the steps to performing spirometry properly? 
It is most important that spirometry is carefully performed. It looks as if it's a simple test, but it's actually not. And the reason it's not is it requires maximum patient understanding and cooperation. So in essence, one wants the patient to put in the maximum effort possible to inhale as deeply as possible and to blow out as forcefully and fully as possible. And you want to reduce the chances that you will get any um, artifacts or false uh, influences in that process that are going to make interpretation difficult. So you want to minimise cough, you want to uh, minimise the possibility that the patient doesn't fully inhale or fully exhale because these measurements are crucial for accuracy. So in the first instance, people might wonder, is it all right to sit down or do patients have to be standing up? No, patients don't have to be standing up. They may sit down to perform spirometry and they're most comfortable doing that. Secondly, you need to explain to the patient how to do the test, that you're going to measure the total volume of air that they can breathe out after a full inhalation. So they need to understand a maximum deep breath is required and then a tight lip seal around the mouthpiece is necessary because you don't want any air to leak out that is not measured. So a full inhalation, then lip seal tightly around the mouthpiece. Then you advise the patient to breathe out as rapidly and fully as possible until they can't get any more air out. It's often helpful to say to the patient, keep on or keep on, you're going well, you're going well, keep going. And that often helps them to fully understand, often demonstrating to them with a mouthpiece, not necessarily the, the test recorder itself, but just a mouthpiece before the test helps them to appreciate the force of effort that's required. And then you have a look at the results to see that the curve does not have any lumps or bumps in it. Often software in current spirometers will tell you if there's been any pause at the beginning of the exhalation. Uh, coughs in the middle of the exhalation are often easily identified on the flow volume curve. Uh, and you repeat the test usually three times. And you should actually be able to get repeatable flow volume curves, generally which are um, within uh, five or at a maximum 10% um, of each other. It should ideally be 5% of the forced vital capacity. Uh, that There is no more variability than that. Uh, so if there is, you need to keep going for another two or three efforts until you get that degree of repeatability. Okay, well that's very useful and your article actually has a link to a video which demonstrates this uh, extremely well. So we'd encourage listeners to take a look at that too because that does really illustrate visually what you've just described. Let's go on to the question of how to interpret spirometry because that is sometimes problematic for primary care practitioners. Um, in the old days, they usually looked at a curve that was a volume time curve, but in fact, most spirometers now give what we call flow volume curves. So they 
start at zero flow and then the patient forcefully exhales and you get a rapid rise to a peak expiratory flow and then you get a rapid fall off which is the progressive reduction in flow which occurs as the person continues to breathe out and as the smaller airways are emptying and then closing during the, the dynamic compression that occurs during exhalation, the flow rate drops off right down to a tail that then approaches the zero point where it's it started. So what sort of ratios are we looking at to consider a diagnosis of airflow obstruction? A diagnosis of airflow obstruction should be made when the ratio is abnormally low and for ease and ready appreciation of an abnormality, a cut point of 0.7 defines uh, airflow limitation. Is a ratio of 0.7 the absolute threshold for diagnosis? No, it's not, Mabel. It, it is a very useful threshold because the majority of people whose ratio is below 0.7 will have airflow limitation but uh, particularly if they are younger. Older people may fall within the normal range um, uh, if, and, and be a little below 0.7. But the point I'd like to make importantly, especially about a patient such as the one we've uh, described in the illustrative case history, is that younger people may have ratios above 0.7 and still have airflow limitation. Uh, it's important, therefore, to use the software in your spirometer. Most people will now have electronic spirometers that have reference sets for their population. Use the ratio that is suggested as normal to give you an idea about whether or not this person falls outside the normal range for their age, sex and height. And remember that younger people can have ratios even quite close to 0.75 or a little higher that still signify airflow limitation and, and do uh, demonstrate bronchodilator reversibility. Thank you. That's a useful tip. So once you've looked at the ratio and determined that there's an obstructive pattern, what's the next step? Well, the step you're interested in after determining that obstruction is present is to ascertain whether this is a reversible airflow limitation and the way we test for reversibility is by using a short-acting bronchodilator, salbutamol, and the recommended guidelines are that a minimum of 200 micrograms is used. So salbutamol comes in a pressurised metadose inhaler of 100 micrograms, so a minimum of two puffs, and some guidelines recommend four puffs to assess bronchodilator reversibility. And this can be given directly by the inhaler or by a spacer, but it's crucial again that the technique is correct because of course you want this to get into the patient effectively. So many people use a spacer to be sure that that, that is achieved. When you're looking for significant reversibility, it must be a minimum of 200 mils or 12% of the baseline FEV1. And if you see that degree of bronchodilator response, then you can say there is reversible airflow limitation present. Now that doesn't give you an absolutely definite diagnosis of asthma. This could still be characteristic of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Some people with COPD have significant reversibility and of course some people with asthma also have COPD and vice versa. However, what you can say on the basis of observing 200 mils and 12% change or more is that there is 
reversible airflow limitation present. Okay, and for the sake of argument, let's say that in our case, this gentleman did indeed demonstrate some airflow reversibility. What is the role of peak flow meters uh, in a case such as this where the diagnosis might not be absolutely clear-cut? If the diagnosis isn't clear-cut and say the patient is well at the time they are tested and they don't have significant airflow limitation, then you may wish to do home monitoring to look for uh, variability that occurs day by day or particularly variability that is characterised by uh, morning, what we call morning dipping. So uh, what you might do is uh, lend a patient a peak flow meter for a couple of weeks and ask them to record their peak flow reading on first getting up in the morning and on going to bed at night. You may well demonstrate um, diurnal variability, a gain of around 15 to 20% would be significant. Um, or alternatively, you might say to the patient and then take some Ventolin when you first get up and record 10 to 15 minutes later. A crucial component of peak flow monitoring at home is being certain that the patient knows they must put maximum effort into the reading because if they don't, they'll record a low value which is simply a result of a suboptimal effort rather than a true result of airflow limitation. Yes, and I guess a demonstration in the consulting room is, is often uh, the way to go. Absolutely it is, and, and often demonstrating it yourself and then giving the patient their mouthpiece and getting them to show you how they do it is really the best way to be sure. So peak flow monitoring, not necessarily a useful first step in diagnostic testing, but it certainly plays a role in supporting spirometry findings. Or sometimes it's helpful if you suspect the workplace or the home is responsible uh, for exposure to triggers that are important in causing the symptoms. The other situation traditionally people have used peak flow readings is to help patients identify when they have a drop in lung function that warrants a step up in their treatment, say in an action plan. What we know now about action plans is you don't have to have peak flow readings. You can base them on symptoms and uh, as long as patients recognise the symptoms that signify a worsening of their asthma, then a symptom-based plan is just as effective as a peak flow-based plan. Excellent. That's very helpful. Christina, it was interesting to see that nine US medical specialties have recently released lists of tests or procedures that were felt to be either unnecessary or not well employed in a bid to improve safety and quality of care and to reduce costs in the US healthcare system. Now, as part of this initiative, the five recommendations from the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology included one on spirometry that says, don't diagnose or manage asthma without spirometry. I'm not familiar with that, Mabel. I, I haven't seen that. I'd be most interested to see it. Uh, but if the recommendation was that asthma should not be diagnosed without lung function testing, I, I would support that. Mm. I think that um, we're not talking here about sophisticated lung function tests. The majority of patients do only need spirometry. But what we are seeing, at least in Australia, much more commonly now is uh, young adults who had wheezing illness as children and of course as children were too young to have lung function testing so a clinical diagnosis of asthma was made and then when they develop 
a variety of respiratory symptoms, they're told that it must be the asthma back again without any attempt being made to make a definitive or an objective diagnosis. And I think it's essential to spare people that, the cost of it and the potential side effects. I would be very supportive of any recommendation that suggests a simple spirometry is important to confirm a diagnosis of asthma. Thank you, Christine. That's really clarified the role of spirometry in primary care. And again, that practice article is available on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be looking at diabetes and the Danish health minister talks patient engagement. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.